When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Sleepover Cinema, where we analyze films that created the collective unconscious of those who are also unsure where the line between appropriation and appreciation falls. I'm Hannah Leach, a writer, musician, audio producer, and white woman. And I'm Audrey Leach, director, editor, producer, and other white woman. (laughs) We are the sister duo, also known as Tooping Productions, and we haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them. We're going to explore the good, the bad, and the nonsensical of the movies that first inspired our love for film in an attempt to answer the question, Are these movies actually good? And at the end of the day, do we really care if they are? Today we are talking about 2005's Beauty Shop. Gina's the best stylist in town. Oh my God. You're the miracle worker. With the world's worst boss. Give me some proper respect, yeah? You act like you own me. Of course I do. Quick. Are you going to fall flat on your behind? Well, I got a little cushion, so I'll be just fine. Now she's taking a chance to live her dream. Look like somebody swallowed the 70s and threw it up in here. Come on, let's make this place into Gina's. And starting her own business. Gina's Beauty Shop. Joe's Electrical Repairs. I'm Joe. She's got a brand new crew. All right, we are professional. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Welcome. If you're listening <laughs> on the day of release, I hope your Thursday is gentle so far. My Thursday has not been gentle so far personally, <laughs> but I'm going to overcome and I will survive. We don't usually record on Thursdays, so yeah. it's kind of weird to be posting the like stories about The Wizard of Oz while also recording. It's kind of weird. Yes. Yes. And the reason why it is like that this week is because it's been trying so far, which is funny because on Monday and Tuesday, I was in New York still, and now I am basically paying the price. But we should talk about what we did in New York and who we met because it was so fun. Oh, first of all, we are going to quickly address that we saw Chicago And it was really fun. I've seen Chicago on Broadway like three times in the past. They've all been worse than this one. I think think that Jinx's presence in the show and how much like the box office numbers have improved are like reinvigorating the cast as a whole. And it's just like a whole different energy. I think it was getting, it was tired. It was a little tired. I remember even when I saw it, whenever we went there 5,000 years ago, it felt tired in like 2010. Yeah. So (laughs) I can't imagine how tired it was feeling before that. I feel like this is one of their very few good stunt casting choices instead of random ones. But yeah, Jinx was amazing. She was really funny. She made the role very much Jinx. It felt very yeah. Jinxy. It was so and not yeah. grounded. 
And then other than that, we did a really fun photo shoot with Holland, who is a dedicated listener. And we've been talking to through the DMs for years now, pretty much. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we did a photo shoot that she obviously took the pictures for, but also creative directed. And we got to go to FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology and like be in one of their little studios. And then we also took some pictures in a very interesting location that you will see when the photos come out. But Just know we needed production assistance and we needed to be agile to pull it off. Another listener, Emma, did my makeup and she was so fun. And I know she's probably listening to this because she told us she listens to everything. So hi, Emma. Yeah. Hi, Emma. (laughs) Uh, It was so cool. Like the fact that so many of our listeners are so talented and enterprising is awesome. And it's so fun to be able to work with people that are so like cut from the same cloth as we are, instead of just like picking random people out of the ether. Emma has already been working in the industry for 10 years, which I think is really cool. She has a really awesome Joni Mitchell shoulder tattoo. She was just an icon. Loved getting to meet her. Same with Holland. So thank you so much to Holland and Emma and all of you guys will get to see pictures as soon as we have them, pretty much. We might have new show art. I hope so. I think we will have new show art. Okay, so (sighs) moving on. Question for the culture. It's more like topic for the culture rather than a question. The culture is super sick right now. It's actually really bad, period. Did you see that video of Ariana DeBose opening for the BAFTAs? (laughs) (laughs) So I've only seen it through Jamie Lee, You Are All of Us. Yeah, yeah. But yes. And do you know more about that context than I do? I'm guessing yes. I mean, there's not a whole lot of context to give. It was an opening (laughs) performance for the BAFTAs. She hosted, was it the Oscar? Was it the the Tonys? That would probably make more sense. I don't know. It was an award show last year and it went well comparatively to this one but (laughs) this is the thing today I saw a behind the scenes video of her like practicing and she says it the exact same way like she's doing the movements the same way so it's not like this is a situation (laughs) where she gets on stage and it's different and she's like making it up this was rehearsed to be really like cheesy and like a little campy over the top and it also is clearly trying to channel like 90s ballroom that is what that is what she was going for and that's why she's Uh. kind of speaking in like a announcer type voice like yeah Angela Bassett. <laughs> like she's like <laughs> I don't know so yeah and and the choreography was also reminiscent of that so I'm like no I get what they were going for but if I were her I would take that reaction because you can't buy better press you actually can't right. even if it is even if it's seen as negative or it feels really negative it's actually great for you And so if I was her, I would not have deactivated my Twitter account after this happened. I would have like quote tweeted it and been like, LMAO, basically. Like I would have just, (laughs) it's like, even if you're mad, I think it does a lot more for you to just play into it. Yeah. Yeah. The line, the line that I think haunts me the most is, (laughs) Viola Davis, our woman king. Yeah. 
It's not like that's super out of the ordinary for an award show opening. Like think of like Neil Patrick Harris 2013, yeah. whenever that was. Like it's, yeah. it's not abnormal to name the people in the audience. I think it, it, there's just something about it. <laughs> Well, that do you didn't think- hit. Also, how out of breath. I think she just like wasn't ready for like maybe the distance she needed to travel or something. Yeah. I mean, the dry, dry, dry mic feed was yeah. not particularly flattering. Yeah. And that's the other problem that is doing her dirty is that the BAFTAs aren't a televised event in the same way that the Oscars are. They're not doing it they're not like making sure that she won't be done dirty in the broadcast like in the recording so that's the other thing i'm so fond and a girl you were great and blonde danielle d you broke my heart michelle i've loved you from the start angela bassett did the thing viola davis my woman king blanche kate you're a genius and jamie lee you are all of us i don't get why people are being mean to her about yeah, it like it's me either it's cringeworthy but it's so good it's it's hilarious and like what it, is i think it what's interesting is that people on twitter and people in general are getting so stupid about their interpretations of shit that like yeah they can't even understand that like she meant it to be that way. <laughs> like, this uh-huh. isn't something that she was like, this is so serious. And people interpret it as though she doesn't know what it is she just did. But an example of somebody playing into it, I feel like it did dampen things, is like Leah Michelle playing into the I can't read joke. Like, it has oh, happened. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah. think it did... In a sense, it kills the joke because as soon as the person acknowledges it, it's dead for the general population. Well, shout out to her for her contributions to the sleepover cinema culture. You ready to talk about Beauty Shop? Yep. Beauty Shop was released on March 30th, 2005 and was rated a surprisingly mild PG-13 for, quote, sexual material, language, and brief drug references. We're going to come back to that. Because I don't think it should be rated R, but it's just kind of surprising that it's not. The movie was directed by Billy Woodruff, known for directing standalone episodes of Yellow Jackets, The Vampire Academy, Fear the Walking Dead, Truth Be Told, and Empire. But then when you get like deeper into his work, he was like a super prolific music video director. So he did a ton of stuff for Tony Braxton, a bunch of stuff for Britney Spears, and a bunch of other super relevant music videos. Wait, my prerogative always reminds me of show choir because there was one show choir that did that song. And at the end of it, they went, that's my prerogative. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I was wondering why that was in my mind because it I kept so thinking about funny. that too. And they did like a stop. They did like... Oh God, it was I'm so not surprised. Funny. That is like peak show choir culture. Beauty Shop was written by a few people. So Elizabeth Hunter has story credit. She's known for producing Jumping the Broom, The Fighting Temptations, Reprisal, Abducted, The Carlina White Story, Charmed, and The L Word. I had to put in Charmed and The L Word because love those. Kate Lanier wrote the screenplay. She also wrote the screenplay for Set It Off 
and glitter, baby. And then lastly, we have Norman Vance Jr., who also has a screenwriting credit. He worked on Moesha, Girlfriends, American Soul, Queen Sugar, Swagger, Our Kind of People, and Roll Bounce. So all of that is like very quintessential black media, black TV. All right, here's the IMDb synopsis. You thought you'd heard it all in the barbershop, but you haven't heard anything yet. The women get their own chance to shampoo, shine, and speak their minds in beauty shop. And that is important also to know is that it's a spinoff of Barbershop, like Ice Cube's yeah. Barbershop. Yes. And he's a producer on this, so it makes sense. And then yes. the letterbox synopsis. Far from Chicago, hairdresser Gina Norris has relocated to Atlanta with her daughter and has quickly established herself as a rare talent in her profession. But after repeatedly butting heads with her shady over-the-top boss, Jorge, Norris sets out to create her own salon, even snagging a few of Jorge's employees and clients. Now Jorge will do anything to shut her down. Uh, Jorge is so silly. Jorge is so silly and like <laughs> such a legally blonde era representation of a gay guy. I feel like this letterbox synopsis, it presents the plot of this movie with a way more like concrete. Yeah. Cut and dry. Format. <laughs> yeah. Than there actually is. And there's one tagline and it says dot, dot, dot style that's all her own. Yes, and this singular tagline was not listed on IMDb. I had to go into the poster archives and find it myself. And all the other taglines were like from the producers of yeah. Barbershop, Barbershop or whatever. So it was nothing that good. Getting into the cast, there are a lot of people in this. And so I tried to just stick to the people that were most relevant to our situation here. So firstly, we have Queen Latifah as Gina. We know her best for being Motormouth Maybell in Hairspray and Matron Mama Morton in Chicago. Coincidentally, the same role that Jinx is currently playing. But she also is known for being a producer on Bringing Down the House. She also was in Taxi, the Queen Latifah show, obviously, and the 2012 Steel Magnolias, which I'm, she also produced and was in. And we're going to come back to that because it feels very relevant to this movie also. And then, of course, she's known as Hip Hop's First Lady. She is a super groundbreaking rapper. She also is a lesbian. <laughs> Throw that in there, too. Um, I love her. She's someone who exudes a lot yeah. of warmth. But what's amazing about her, too, is that she's been able to cultivate a image that is basically separate from her sexuality. The general public, I don't think, is like Queen Latifah, lesbian. I think she's been able to do so much. Like she's been able to not be defined by that because she's yeah. so versatile and she has, she's just so iconic that it's like not even close to the most notable thing about her. Well, I did do a little bit of digging and really I didn't go super deep just because there's a lot of people to cover, but she didn't publicly acknowledge her partner, I think until 2021. So it was pretty yeah. recent that she finally acknowledged it, but I think it was a situation where like people, people knew. knew. But again, it's Queen Latifah. She's not using her queerness for clout. She's using her talent for clout. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we have Alicia Silverstone as Lynn. Ubiquitously, 
Cher from Clueless, of course. But she also was in Batman and Robin, Excess Baggage, Blast from the Past. She recently was in senior year with Rebel Wilson. She was in the 2017 Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie. She was also in Brace Face. And she was like the recurring hot girl in Aerosmith's music videos, which I find to be really funny. And that's a very white thing to claim. Next, we have Andy McDowell as Terry. She is best known for Groundhog Day, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and Hudson Hawk. Then we have... Alfre Woodard as Ms. Josephine, best known for Star Trek First Contact, 12 Years a Slave, Annabelle, and K-Pax. Then we have Mina Suvari as Joanna, and I was like, why does she look familiar? She was Angela Hayes in American Beauty, Heather in American Pie, Dora Diamond in Loser, and Kimmy in Domino. We have Della Reese as Mrs. Towner. She's a really interesting person. Her name was familiar to me, and I was like, is she a singer? And the answer is yes. She formed the singing group, The Meditation Singers, and became the first performer to take gospel music to the casinos of Las Vegas. Her first credit on screen was playing herself in like a rock and roll movie from 1958. And then in addition to her music career, she like had like a a relatively light seeming TV career. Like she booked a lot, but like single episodes on series. And she was nominated for a Grammy in gospel music at one point in her career. She has that vibe. She has excellent vibes. Next, we have Golden Brooks as Chanel. She was a series regular on Girlfriends, playing the role of Maya, and was on 172 episodes, baby. Then we have Lil JJ as Willie, best known for Wild and Out. But also, I was like, I know he was on Nickelodeon. Who is this guy? And he was on Just Jordan. He He's Jordan on Just Jordan. So Beauty Shop was his first credit. He's a cutie and I appreciate him. Then we have Keisha Knight-Pulliam as Darnell. She played Rudy Huxtable on The Cosby Show for 186 episodes. And she was also on House of Pain for 159 episodes. <laughs> then we have Sherry Shepard as Ida. Recently, she's been on Sex Lives of College Girls and Less Than Perfect, but she's best known for Precious, 30 Rock, and One for the Bunny. And then, of course, now uh, has The Sherry Show, right? Like that she's taping now, which was the de facto replacement for the Wendy Williams show. Yeah. Shout out to Wendy Williams. <laughs> and she was she was on The View like when we were kids. I remember that. Okay. She's also on the podcast I edited. So it's called Kim. That too? K-Y-M. A uh, Lena Waithe production, yes. correct? Yes. Yeah. And then we have Kevin Bacon as Jorge, best known for Footloose, The Woodsman, Mystic River, and Hollow Man. I did not realize that was Kevin Bacon. I also like Google image searched what he looked like and was like, I, you know, the Kiki Palmer video that's like, yeah. I can see that man in the street wouldn't know a thing. That's what I feel like about Kevin Bacon. So then next we have Jimon Hunsu. I'm definitely butchering his name as Joe. Um, he's from West Africa. He's in Blood Diamond, Guardians of the Galaxy in America, and Amistad. And then last but not least, borderline uncredited, we have the Octavia Spencer moment. Her character's name is Big Customer, which is kind of fucked up. But I love seeing Octavia Spencer in these like random ass small roles in movies because now we all know her as the star that she is. Actually, and um, it's just cool. Hunter and I have an in, we have a joke where 
this works for Octavia Spencer and Chloe Grace Moretz. Th- those are the two. We go, every time we see her on screen, we go, there's an 84% chance that if you watch a movie, that Octavia Spencer will be in it or that Chloe Grace Moretz will be in it because they That's are. Funny. They're just in everything for no reason. So funny. Okay, the budget was $25 million. Opening weekend made $12,801,465. And the worldwide gross is $37,245,453. So, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. So, critic and audience opinions. Okay, the critic score was 38%, and the consensus on Rotten Tomatoes was, despite a strong performance by Queen Latifah, Beauty Shop is in need of some style pointers. And then a few critic opinions. It's thin Kate Lanier and Norman Vance Jr. screenplay is virtually non-existent, and there isn't a single thing that happens I didn't see coming from over a mile away, and yet I still thoroughly enjoyed myself. Okay, that's that's good. That's fair. <laughs> the second one is, I thought this was too much like the pilot for a sitcom. That is something I was thinking about a lot, and yeah. I was like, it should be a sitcom, and it would be so good. And yeah. the third one is, this bottom feeder's sophomoric locker room approach to black, white, gay, straight, and male, female issues cannot be undone by a saccharine storybook ending. One thing that I was really paying attention to as I was cultivating these who reviews. Are, yeah, who the fuck is writing this? Is who's writing each one. And especially, are they white? Are they black? Are they a man? Are they a man? Are they a woman? Like, what's the situation? And that review was actually written by a black man. I tried to seek out some specifically black reviews of the movie, and I found this one, which was published on Howard University News Service. But there's no author listed, but Howard University is a historically black university, so... I'm just going with it. But this is some excerpts of what was said. Queen Latifah presents an awful portrayal of black hair in present day in her latest movie, The Beauty Shop. It's not even the name. The movie is a spinoff from the Barbershop series, which starred Ice Cube as the owner of a historic barbershop in the south side of Chicago. Latifah made a guest appearance in Barbershop 2 to set up the spinoff. The movie begins with Latifah, who is growing frustrated with working in a high-end salon owned by a Liberace-esque, ego-driven tyrant named Jorge. She launched Launches her own shop, an almost all femme locale in a tougher but friendlier black area. Andy McDowell and Mina Suvari make a transition, this is what they said, to the ghetto by saying outrageously stupid things about black culture. McDowell's character referring to the Janet Jackson scandal and eating greens to get a, quote, little junk in the trunk, end quote. I think this is the first movie I've ever watched that is so inherently black but also is not, like, prestigious. Like, I feel like most black films I've seen are, like, critically they're acclaimed. Or like, they're Oscar bait or, like, it's Spike Lee or something that's yeah. super, like, integral to history. And it's, like, this and is, the, I mean, this is a sleepover cinema movie. And that yeah. that is allowed to exist. I just feel like. And it should the exist. Whole, More it, of it, them. No, it totally should exist. Yeah. And I feel like the truth is a lot of them do exist, but just only black people watch them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the burden of, obviously this movie is targeted at black people, but like the fact that it's it's the whole thing that people always talk about where like if you're a black person and one black person fucks up publicly in a really big way, you feel like it's a reflection on the whole race. Like it affects you personally. I kind of feel like... It's the same with that. 
It's like but similar with the movie. It was such a successful franchise. Like if it was a standalone, that would be one thing if it was panned. I saw a TikTok yesterday that was like a quote. It's actually, it was Viola Davis talking about the woman king. <laughs> the woman king. Trying to get that movie funded was hell because they're like, okay, but how is this going to appeal to a broad audience? How is this not only going to appeal to black women, basically. Everything is a fight. And I'll tell you the ultimate fight that really, I have to be honest, that goes up my ass. You have a film, The Woman King, based on the Agogia tribe. And it's got to be test screened. And it's got to mean something to white males, white females, and black males. It doesn't matter if it's reaching 98% of black females. So how do you reach white males. Naniska is not going to have a G-string on, you know, or, you know, become Abilene and the help. So how do you reach the white male audience? And how do you make people feel like if I can't reach the white male audience, it, it, it doesn't mean that the movie is, can't have some commercial value. That was a big thing. She's having to to try to prove a point that shouldn't need to have to be proved, which is that nobody's going to ask that when they're pitching Top Gun Maverick, okay? No one's going to ask yeah. that. When who does that really appeal to? White guys. The audience score was 62% and the letterboxed average star rating was three. And then here's three audience opinions. The first one is people forget how big of a deal Queen Latifah is. Oscar nominee Queen Latifah. She can act, but she doesn't have to act. She can just be like in Beauty Shop and just be a magnet of charisma and likability and positive energy. And Beauty Shop is this shimmering snow globe of a bygone era. The pre-social media barbershop. Flip phones out the yin-yang. You've got Kevin Bacon after just watching Napoleon Dynamite for the <laughs> first time. You've got Dijman Hunsu going full on Adonis. You've got Alicia Silverstone going full on white trash. You've got little girl piano recitals, but always Queen Latifah pulling things to the center. The clear shining star that this zany shop orbits around. The second one is, what if I said this movie was how I learned who Maya Angelou and Madam C.J. Walker were at the ripe <laughs> age of seven? That's history. And the third one is, I love seeing women win. Okay, so speaking of history, it's March 2nd. We realized that we did only white media during Black History Month, <laughs> which is unfortunate to say the least. So here we are. Technically, we're recording this in February. So cut us It's February back 23rd. <laughs> and we didn't realize it was going to be March by the time it came out until right now. So happy belated Black History Month. Cultural context for this movie. So there was a lot of things I could have picked from, but what I decided to focus in on is just a little bit of cultural context around Black beauty shops. So I just pulled some stuff I want to share with you guys. It's pulled from a review of Tiffany Gill's Beauty Shop Politics, African-American Women's Activism in the Beauty Industry. And yes, I activated my NYU alumni JSTOR access to pull this information. <laughs> The author of this book, again, is Tiffany Gill. So this reviewer wrote this. Tiffany M. Gill provides a compelling analysis of how Black beauticians found agency during and after the Jim Crow era of the early to mid-20th century, a time when Black women faced immense racial, gender, and class opposition. Black beauticians negotiated their identities as Black businesswomen and expanded traditional notions of womanhood by including their entrepreneurial activities as part and parcel of Black women's respectability and duty to their 
the race. Gill essentially argues that the black beauty industry was a unique site for the cultivation of black women's activism toward racial uplift. Moreover, the convergence of beauty, business, and politics informed the identities and activities of black women in distinct ways throughout the 20th century. Black beauticians or beauty culturalists, as they called themselves and were called by their constituents, were businesswomen in the purest sense who owned and operated salons. Others were workers in salons, while still others engaged in hair work independently in their own homes or apartments. Furthermore, they all shared a common professional identity and considered themselves businesswomen or beauty professionals. Black beauty culturalists gave speeches at black business conferences on issues confronting black businesswomen and encouraged more women to try their hand at business ventures. In 1916, Madam C.J. Walker, relevant, initiated the development of what became the Walker Hair Culturalists Union, which sought to demonstrate the financial and political clout of Walker agents. And then there's a few more things here. Gill also demonstrates how black beauty salons served as meaningful institutions in the black community, which served as unique spaces for black women to develop agents and assert their leadership. Beauty salons provided black women an alternative to menial labor, for example, as domestics, washerwomen, factory workers, etc. And then black beauty culturalists maintain a certain level of autonomy and independence over their businesses, a luxury not afforded to many other black entrepreneurs and business owners during the time. And you can kind of see like the legacy of the entrepreneurship and the control in like hair braiding and hair care services in-house that people do from their homes or in like a salon loft situation. It's an interesting cultural through line. And this movie definitely exists within that sphere. Okay, so as far as when we first watched and what we remember, um, sad to report, we never saw this movie as children. We didn't really have that many like PG-13 movies sanctioned when we were kids other than like School of Rock and maybe a few others. But yeah, this one definitely would not have been on that list. However, I do remember seeing commercials for it and like I was aware of the movie when Audrey brought it up to me. So at least it was that. So again, because we don't really have childhood memories of this movie, I posted on my Instagram story saying who has strong opinions. A bunch of people responded to my story and unsurprisingly, they were all black. So um, we're going to share their experiences here. Okay, so first we have a voice note from Darren at DX Christie on Instagram. He has been on the podcast before. Actually, all three of the people who have sent in voice memos have been on the podcast before. So it'll be fun to hear their voices again. But first, here's Darren's childhood memories about Beauty Shop. Personally, I don't remember the first time I saw the film just because it is a mainstay in my household since the time I was really young. Even now, me and my family go back and watch it like it's the first time and laugh like it's the first time. And it's also become one of my comfort films that I go back to a lot. I think my favorite thing about the film is how unapologetically black it is. You know, it's about black love, black entrepreneurship, black friendships, black female friendships, which is something you don't get to see a lot. In a world where black trauma films are forced down your throat, a movie that shows the black community in such a positive light and has a beginning to end that and an end that's positive. It's just so, so amazing to see. Queen Latifah, everything she touches turns to gold, and you have a stacked cast like Kevin Bacon, Alicia Silverstone, with a terrible accent, might I add. Shari Shepard, Elfrey Woodard, and so many more, and most of the cast being made up of Black people. It's just amazing to see, and just 
seeing people live their lives, Black people live their lives in such a normal way is just awesome to see on screen. The film taking something that is so special and personal to the Black experience, hair care and the beauty shop, and turning that into just such a heartwarming movie is just and it is just so amazing to me. And I think this movie deserves a whole lot more praise and a, a whole lot more respect than it's given. Next, we have a voice note from Danae at the underscore great underscore Danae 1129 on Instagram. With Beauty Shop, I did not watch it when it first came out because I was pretty young when it first came out. But I do remember we had it on DVD. That was pretty normal. Like if something had a black lead, we had it. But I don't think I watched it until it was playing on TV. When I was in middle school, it was always on E or BET or something like that. Like it was always on. Anytime it was on, I would watch it. So I would say it was probably one of the first comfort movies of mine. And anything with Queen Latifah in it, I wanted to see. I was able to relate to it because in the beginning of the movie, she is working in this salon that, you know, works with white people. And I was a black girl around a lot of white people. But it also made me want to be myself unapologetically because that's the same thing Queen Latifah's character was doing. I also liked that there is not one person in that movie that I didn't see on something else. I do remember feeling weird about Alicia Silverstone's character. I don't know. It's weird because she was never racist or anything, I don't think. But it was the first time I saw a white character try to prove themselves to a black character in a way that was like, see, like, I'm cool enough to be with you guys. Like, I'm cool enough. I can I can, I can, can hang around y'all. So I don't know. I think that was interesting for me because that was something I had never seen before. I don't know. Maybe it was the accent that did it too because they are supposed to be in Atlanta. Like I live in Atlanta now and I have family in Atlanta and it's, I've always been close to Atlanta, but I don't know. It just felt weird because I'm like the white people I see in Atlanta do not sound like that, but I don't think her character was from Atlanta. Also, the exterior of the salon I'm like that's supposed to be Atlanta that ain't it so I don't know but overall it was just a comfort movie it was a comfort movie it had familiar faces it's kind of like turning on Princess Diaries like it's comfortable and cozy and finally, a voice note from our high school bestie and also a return to this podcast, Kirk. And he is at Cap'n Kirk Liddell on Instagram. I will link everybody's social media in the description and in the show notes. So honestly, I don't know when the first time I saw Beauty Shop, but it's one of those shows like in the Black community that is just simply a staple. It used to play on BET a lot, but I remember like, watching it at my grandmother's during the summer because um, it like would truly play on cable all of the time. So I remember it just being like this really like female empowering, um, even back then before I really understood like what that meant and why it was important. But it was like this female empowering movie that featured just like black women being incredible, which is I know that for a fact, but it's always really exciting for me to see. Like black women have always been an inspiration to me. So like kind of watching them just like make their way like day by day there's a section where like a kid is trying to sell candy and 
Queenie Latifah like schools him on how to do it better and like helps him. Like at no point does she belittle him or make him feel small or dumb, but she like does school him and make him like acknowledge like that she's grown and smarter than him, which is kind of incredible. And I think what, like I said, what makes it good is that it's um, black female driven, black female led. It's funny. It's funny as hell. Like I remember it being hilarious. Like the ending is this big like catfish kind of moment. And I just think it's hilarious. Um, I still think about it and laugh to this day. I watched this movie for free on Tubi. Please clap. So go give it a watch. We'll be here waiting for you with open mouths as always. Open mouths? <laughs> I, I just made it up right now. It's being stupid on purpose. <laughs> it sounds gross. <laughs> I know, as I said it, I was like, ew. But, you know, I'm always just trying to say something different during these transitional <laughs> moments. <laughs> All right. BRB. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do. So you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. talk about beauty shop and I'm just gonna get right into it I have extreme appreciation when a main character's hair is different in every scene obviously it's important because she does work at a salon so like her hair should be changing but literally Queen Latifah's hair is different in every scene like it's and I I that kind of attention to detail that kind of effort it does not go unnoticed um, Alicia Silverstone's hair is also crazy in this movie. Her cute, her character in general is a trip, if you will. The accent is like not really correct, but it is no. funny. I don't really just like making a mockery of the Southern white woman, basically. I have to say, one thing that stood out to me so much while watching this movie is how much like natural hair is having a moment because in this movie it's like all relaxed hair all straightened hair wigs that just stood out to me as something noteworthy 
And something that I appreciated about the writing here is that they have like a really strong like foil type dynamic in a way with Alicia's character and Queen Latifah's character because they swap. So at first Queen Latifah is the only black hairstylist in a white salon and then they switch. So uh, so it's like a fun little swap movie in that respect. But there are legitimately like 20 characters and there are so many storylines going on at once that it does feel like a pitch for a sitcom. And I just wonder if that was something that they were going for because you, it's the perfect setup for a sitcom. You've got your central set, the the hair salon, and you've got a kid. It's great to have a kid in your sitcom because then you can do kid storylines. They have just so many people that they could create storylines off of. And I'm like, damn, where's the show? Like that that would have been good. And so many of the actors are TV veterans. So it seems like that would have been the thing. Were you expecting Oprah to show up in this movie? Because I was. No, that did not cross my mind. Because they just kept talking about her and kept showing things of her. And I was like, you know how the the DJ shows up at the end? Yeah. I thought it was going to be Oprah. We could talk about James. Yeah. So they're like not letting him have his feminine side. Like, they're not letting him be, like, potentially bisexual or potentially just (laughs) feminine in some ways. I was, like, kind of shook by that. I was like, damn, everyone's being mean to him, but he's so hot. It doesn't even matter. Like, that only makes him more attractive in some circles. (laughs) Yeah, well... That's the whole thing, too, is, like, my understanding, especially from all of this, like, all this work I've been doing on this other podcast, is that, like, the black community has been slower to be accepting of gayness than other communities, and kind of in this, like, archaic, like, old-school homophobia way. Yeah. And it feels like that is applying in this situation. The 2005 of it all is so interesting because, for example, like um, when James and Alicia Silverstone go and start dancing in the club and Sherry Shepard is like, yeah, he's at this table with all these beautiful black women and of course he's going to go for the white one. Like MTV is the devil. So funny. And also things have changed so much since then. The mass like fetishization of black women and like black features is so much more of a thing now than it was back then. And there's just a lot about the movie that is making me have a different perspective on how culture has changed from then to now in good ways and in troubling ways. Yeah. For example, kind of one of the things that I was like, huh, the most about is, this is 2005, and they encourage Alicia Silverstone to basically act more black, if you will, or like present more, I mean, she's never going to present black, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like to fit in more, like to play the part more. And that's not something that they would encourage No, absolutely not. And in fact, like what you see on like TikTok and wherever now is like 
when white women are doing their white women thing correctly, yeah. like that is the praised. most appreciated thing. Yeah. Well, something that I sensed watching it is that they're doing, they're like allowing for the white women in this film to be very much like a one dimensional, like car, sort of cartoony version of themselves. Yeah. And that is yeah. something that has classically happened in dozens and dozens of films to a tokenized black character. And so yeah. I thought that was kind of fun that like, this is a movie yes. where we have like 25 nuanced, at least somewhat, some of them are more comedic roles, but there's, you've got, you've got a whole range. There's like over a dozen black women in this movie with names and like more than three lines. And then you've yeah. got the Andy McDowell character and like the blonde girl who are just like completely <laughs> one dimensional. What did you think about the scene? See, what I did not anticipate is that they would create conflict between the blonde rich girl and Alicia Silverstone about James. Like I was like, wait, that's going to be the conflict that takes away the, like, potential business deal from Queen Latifah? Well, to me, that feels really classic and also probably true to life, you know? Because it's like the person with the resources and the connect, of course, is going to be white. And at the end of the day, she's in it for herself. She's not in it to support Gina. yeah. And the fact that the fight came over, they don't say this, but, like, the rich lady, like, treating James as, like, an inanimate object by, like, grabbing his butt like that. Like, yeah, there is a, something really, like, interesting going on there that isn't explicitly named. I thought, yeah. Yeah, I bought it. Yeah, yeah. No, I buy it. It was more that I was surprised that the conflict was so irrelevant to Queen Latifah, like her character. Yeah. Like it was, yeah. she didn't do anything. She literally was just standing there and this <laughs> unfolded. And um, yeah. she kind of just has this like series of bad luck. I was so surprised by how quickly they said the N word with a hard R. <laughs> and, and had Alicia beginning. say it kind of, I was like, whoa. I know. I kind of feel like watching her in this role, I'm like, Obviously, the entire creative team was black and the entire cast was black and, like, she was doing her job. But it's, like, looking back at that now, it's, like, if this movie was made today, how would this be different? It feels very of the time that she got that wig when she decided to try to fit in more with the black women and just said the N-word because that's what was in the script. Like, it yeah. just... Is interesting. I'm sure she had her reservations going into it for sure. Yeah. But also like they didn't have, yeah, like they had her say the N-word, but it was like indirect. I also just appreciate that in this movie and in Clueless, she is the best friend to a chic black woman. It's not yeah. the first time we've seen it happen. Yeah. Shout out to the purse vendor. Yeah, shout out to the purse vendor. We were talking about how, like, painfully behind the times white people have always been in terms of, like, what's yeah. culturally relevant or f what's the new slang, what's fun to say, that sort of thing. Like, all of the... And Drag Race has also contributed to this mm -hmm. immensely, like, mm -hmm. immensely. Mm -hmm. Any kind of, like, ballroom-related 
slang, all that stuff. What's the tea, you know, sis, all that stuff. The, um, the people that I say, the people that I hear saying what's the tea. Yeah. It's gotten repulsive. <laughs> it's literally, it's like beyond corporate pride. Yeah. It's just like fully stolen. And also you hear all the time, like, Black people are cultural innovators, like they're always ahead, blah, blah, blah. And like, of course you believe it, but it's like, this movie has so many hard receipts of that being true. Yeah. And how... Stuff that you could see in a corporate Pride commercial today and that some random white people would be like, wow, that's so different and quirky. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. There... So what we're referring to is that there's this scene in the movie where... Queen Latifah's like outside doing something and there's this purse vendor in the street who's just like a very femme, like like male presenting person, but like has like both arms like covered in purses and is like, you're a diva. You need this bag, like making this whole sales pitch. And then when she takes the purse, he just does like a full dip onto the ground, (laughs) onto the sidewalk. And it's so funny and so pure and like authentic feeling. And you're just like, damn, like for me to become aware of people like that, it took years of drag race and then getting into Paris is burning and so on and so forth. Like, it's troubling how much is stolen from black people, obviously. Yes, it is troubling. And how um, there's the way that our the way that our media hierarchy is set mm. up makes it so that some of the white people that will appropriate those words, they don't even under they don't they don't even have the awareness that they are stolen. So when when yeah. stuff like that gets called out, a lot of them will get defensive or be like, oh, you know, like I didn't know, blah, blah, blah. That whiteness not being able to know that something is stolen is a privilege in mm-hmm. itself. Like, yeah. Well, and it's also the classic thing of like white as a default. Yeah. Like, like there's black media that's very intentionally black, run by black people about like, you know, some of it is like news, news, but a lot of it is like pop culture stuff and whatever. And that's black media. But then it's like white media is just media. Yeah. Instead of being white media. That's just the baseline. Yeah. Uh, Certainly. We know quite well there is white media in this world. Okay. What do you think about the argument that has been being made where we might have even talked about this when I was in New York, but I can't remember. All of the most popular shows about white people these days being about problematic, rich white people. So it can be an all white cast. Yeah, it is wrong. I do take issue with the fact also because there are very rich black people, too. You actually yeah. could include that narrative. But I think that a lot of white creators, because they all those shows, mm. all those shows come from white creators. They're not prepared and they they don't have the life experience, I'm guessing, to like feel that they can or should include that narrative. So I think there's probably a lot of second guessing. I don't know if Mike White even necessarily casts race. Like, I don't... Everyone casts race, though. No, but, like, for every character. Like, I'm sure they considered more than white people for certain characters. Like, I'm sure they did. It would be a problem if they didn't. 
I feel like race-blind casting is so fake, though. Yeah, I'm not saying... I'm not making the claim that he's race-blind at all. Yeah. I, I don't think he is. But um, yeah. I think race-blind casting is amazing when you're in a fantastical world. Like, it can... Like, yes. Cinderella. yes. Or like Shakespeare or something. Yeah, just where it's irrelevant. Yeah. Like that we're not working in the paradigm of today. So you can ignore that stuff and it feels freeing instead of wrong. If the people in the show are profiting majorly off of portraying this type of wealth and the corrupt, like how corrupt it can be, if they're if their stock is quickly rising due to it, it's 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 like an, a snake eating its own tail. It's like, okay, but you're becoming that. Like you are that. You're not like showing some dirty underbelly at some point. You're just being rich and profiting off of the satisfaction that people get from feeling like they are better than something. Because mm. like uh-huh. we watch it <laughs> and we're like, wow, they're shitty people. Like they might be rich, but I'm not that they're they're white but I'm not that bad yeah like they're white and I'm white but they suck but they're rich you know it's like yeah it's that 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 thing of being able to separate yourself from the cringe you get from people like within your own race or whatever or within your own social group so it's like yeah these shows get so applauded for I don't know I think it's gonna age very quickly and will go out of trend pretty fast but when you get a successful show like The White Lotus, every streaming company, it, they're all in competition and they're all looking for the hottest thing. And so they all follow suit and make the same thing. And then it's just like, it becomes overkill fast. I think this makes me think of two things also. And one of them is you're a powerful showrunner in Hollywood. You've been in the industry for a long time. You're a white man. Me Too happens. Then... The summer of 2020 happens. You still have all this power. What are you supposed to do with it? How are you supposed to make stuff that is like authentic to you without like adding to the problem? That was their answer to that. That's the answer for a lot of people is like, well, let me show bad white people instead of like normal white people. And then also the other thing that I just wanted to say about the race-blind casting thing as a writer. So I've had some interesting experiences with this because with my play that happened last year, there's two main girls and one of them, it was originally written as Indian American, like South Asian. And this play took me a long time to write and I got like a lot of different types of feedback. And some people were like, you should not be writing this character and but then at the same time you get the message of if your work is all white you are contributing to a bigger problem so then what ends yeah. up happening is that you write these characters semi generically at least for me what feels generic cuz i like to write in specifics and then cast so someone yeah so someone whoever. could race yeah like they could cast whoever But to me, that feels so fake because people's backgrounds are such a huge part of who they are. It's like, how are you going to write a really fleshed out character? It's unfair to ask of writers. Yeah, but then, and then the final thing is like, okay, so if you really follow that logic all the way through, what that leads you to is you shouldn't write. Yeah. If you're white. But is that necessarily realistic? 
Definitely not. (laughs) So then you end up back in this clusterfuck. And kind of where I decided to land is like, and this this will surely change, but like I'm going to write from my experience. It's going to be white people. It doesn't have to be white people, but if someone else sees it, like a different vision for it, it can it can be a not white person. Unless it can't, unless the person is talking about white people shit a lot. It's just such an interesting yeah. thing. I mean, it's not hard to find. Obviously, there's going to be... I think a lot of times the more vocal people are the ones who say you shouldn't be writing this character. And really it's the people who are less outspoken, like they're less Uh personally motivated to speak that feel a lot more nuance in those arenas. I don't think it doesn't benefit anyone to tell a writer or any creative person you can't do blank It's just, you can't do anything with that. I think it's good to encourage them to think about how they're doing it, Mm -hmm. but, and to be as knowledgeable as you can. And if you're approaching it in a thoughtful way, then it's never a bad thing to write a character who isn't like you. That's just the most limiting thing that you could possibly do to a creative person. To bring it back to this movie, one thing I was thinking about too is like, okay, so if this was an all-white cast and there was, like, one black girl in it and she would say, like, quote-unquote, like, black girl things, it would be, like, a punchline. And that's how it works in Beauty Shop with Alicia Silverstone, but it doesn't hit quite the same because there's no, like, precedent for that kind of character. Like, it's less of a stereotype, so it's less... Which is, it doesn't get flagged as problematic, well, which it shouldn't be. It's not. But what's funny is like that girl exists everywhere. That girl exists more now than ever. I mean, I literally know that girl. Yeah. Like I wrote it down in my notes by yeah. name. Yeah, that girl exists. And so she's kind of like an early prototype for that girl. <laughs> like The only thing is she does not choose to do that she well she kind of does but she's put up to do it by the other women in the salon yeah and that's the difference yeah like her intentions are kind of shockingly pure throughout this movie like she's yeah she's pretty she's kind of clueless haha um so yeah she's kind of being informed throughout the whole thing but she generally knows what is not in good taste for her to do and what is she kind of knows but then kind of the workers in the salon are like but you you're never going to get clients if you look like this or whatever so yeah I don't think white women work in black beauty shops or vice versa they're actually interestingly consistently segregated but it also does make sense yeah because the the hair types are so different yeah like the understanding of hair if you have it you understand it to to a level that other people can't what else? What did you think of the love storyline? I didn't buy it at <laughs> I didn't all. Buy it we either. didn't need it. <laughs> she it's just like Queen Latifah radiating gay energy in her sweatsuit. And I'm like, you if when I see her with that guy, I'm like, you could be his mother. Yeah. Not based off what you look like, but just energy-wise. <laughs> I also just wanted to say, I didn't want to touch on this yet. Well, there's two things. Watching this movie, I really appreciated obviously there's like tons of black culture infused in it that's like the entire point of it but like the way that black culture is so much more 
inviting to so many more types of people, like body-wise and expression-wise. Like we touched on the homophobia, but also there is like a really robust queer black history as well. And it's just, it's a very positive portrayal of a culture with like black femmes and black women that is just like cozy to witness, you know? At the end of the day, it's a really lighthearted movie that does not necessarily have high stakes. The stakes are... No. They're like medium, and that's nice. That doesn't, you know, what, yeah. what, when the song gets broken into, that is sad. Like, that is actually sad. But they yeah. get over it so fast because she comes in the next day and they fixed it all somehow. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing is like... Beauty Shop, even though we have been intellectualizing to a certain extent, like Beauty Shop has the right to be stupid. And fun. Like, and like and pr- fun. pretty lighthearted because as we said, so much black cinema is so heavy um, and they're all like amazing stories worth telling. But what if we just want to have a good time? And then the last thing I wanted to say or just something that stood out to me is that as I was watching this movie, I was thinking about Steel Magnolias and how it feels pretty similar to Steel Magnolias in some ways. And like, if you're not familiar with Steel Magnolias, the original was a play and it's like five white women in the South going through like the trials and tribulations of life via meeting up at this beauty shop and like talking about their problems. And that's Dolly Parton was in the movie <laughs> and Sally Field and Shirley MacLaine and other famous people. Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts, yes. All of this is to say that in 2012, <laughs> there was a black remake of Steel Magnolias starring and produced by Queen Latifah. And that just makes me happy because it feels like this movie was really getting at that energy and that that would just be like a boiled down version. And I haven't seen it, but I really want to see it. So is it good? I'm going to say, yeah, it's good because I laughed. We've covered like Oscar winners at this point. So now it's a little harder to measure, I guess. Yeah. But I had, I didn't really know what to expect going in. And it was so much more positive of a watch than like so many movies we've covered. I actually laughed at this one. Like there's movies that we've done where I didn't make a single facial expression the whole time, probably. <laughs> yeah. So yes. by that standard, yeah. It's, it's a winner. Yeah. <laughs> I If I don't think it's excellent, I do think it's extremely worth watching. This is just like a fun movie. You would watch it as Sleepover. We would talk about it on Sleepover Cinema. And I appreciate the space that it holds. And it's good. If you love a makeover sequence, I mean, there's like four of them. So, I mean, come on. That's fun. Yeah, it's true. Shout out to Madam CJ Walker and Audrey. <laughs> Where can they find more from us? You can find more from us at evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepover dash cinema and keep up with our latest creative projects at tubingproductions.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube at sleepover cinema and post a full video version of each episode on YouTube every Thursday. You can follow me, Audrey, at Audriana Leach on everything. 
And you can follow me, Hannah, at Hannah Ray Leach on Instagram and at Lana Von Trapp on Twitter. And of course, please join our Discord server at the link in the episode description or on evergreenpodcast.com. We really want to do some like live movie streaming or trivia or just like hanging out soon. So make sure to get in there so you don't miss it. You can check out our merch at twopinkproductions.com slash shop and our case to code 15 sleepover. And if you love sleepover cinema, if it makes you feel cozy and warm and befriended, please share an episode with a friend, a family member, a coworker, and we would deeply appreciate it. Sleepover Cinema is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, produced, edited, and engineered by us, Hannah and Audrey Leach. Sleepover Cinema is mixed by Sean Roll Hoffman with theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. Executive producer is Michael D'Aloya. Bye. Bye. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.